One of my Bible, favorite Bible stories as a child was the Old Testament tale of Balaam and his talking donkey. Now, if, you, if you've never heard that one, you could read it for yourself sometime in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 22. Balaam was a pagan prophet. He was a prophet for hire. If you paid him enough money, he would put a blessing on your friends or he would put a curse on your enemies. And so the king of Moab, uh, the notorious enemy of ancient Israel, asked Balaam to come and put a curse on God's people, on Israel. And initially Balaam said, you know, nothing doing. He had heard about Israel's God, that Israel's God was a powerful, protective God. He didn't want to mess with Israel's God. But then the king of Moab raised the ante. He said, I'll give you a little more money. And so finally, Balaam said, okay, I'm in. He saddled up his donkey, and he headed off to curse Israel. Of course, God wasn't too happy with that, and so he sent an angel with a drawn sword to stand in the middle of the road. Trouble was, Balaam couldn't see the angel, but his donkey could. And so the donkey stopped, wouldn't go any further. And Balaam didn't know what what was going on, so he beat his donkey, and eventually the donkey started up again. But this happened two more times. The third time, when the angel with the sword appeared, the donkey just laid down in the middle of the road. And now Balaam was really steamed, and he's wailing away on the donkey, and so God enables the donkey to speak. And the donkey says to Balaam, you know, what have I done to you? And as an indication of how crazy angry this pagan prophet was, instead of being dumbstruck by the fact that his beast is now talking, he argues with the donkey. (laughs) So the angel of God has had enough at this point in the story, enables Balaam to see him and says, you know, if it weren't for your donkey, you'd be dead meat by now. I would have sliced and diced you with my sword. It would be all over. You ought to be thanking your donkey. Now, I seriously doubt whether any of you owns a talking donkey. Do you? Didn't think so. But what if, now use your imagination, what if God would use some non-human object in your life to speak to you? Words of warning, to tell you you're on the wrong path. I, I was on my iPhone this past week. I was looking for information from Siri. Siri is that animated help device iPhone users know about Siri. Siri's never been much help to me. You know, about the only thing I like to hear from Siri is if you say, Siri, who let the dogs out? She'll go, who, 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 who. But every time I ask her a question, she, she never knows the answer. And so I asked her a question, and she didn't have an answer. And so I looked at my phone. I said as sarcastically as I could, Siri, you're worthless. And she immediately responded, you are entitled to your opinion, Jim. (laughs) I'm not making this up. (laughs) You know, it got me to thinking, what if my cell phone did this to me on a regular basis? What if it did it in the middle of conversations? So I'm talking to someone, and it's not sarcasm that needs to be corrected. Maybe, Maybe I'm not telling the whole truth. And all of a sudden, my phone cuts in and says, you're not telling the truth, Jim. You know, or I'm gossiping about somebody to a friend and the the phone says, you're dissing somebody, Jim. Or I'm using bad words. You're you're using no-nos, Jim. What, What if some object in your life, some inanimate object warned you? You're on your computer and your little mouse says to you, don't go to that website. Or, or, uh, your gas pedal. What would your gas pedal say to you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ease up. Slow down. 
Or how about, what would your refrigerator door say to you? You don't need any more food. Now, I, I want to talk to you today about an inanimate object in your life, in my life. We, we all have this, and it's willing to speak to us. It wants to talk to us. Money. You ever heard the expression, money talks? What I want you to do right now is if you've got a, a dollar bill or a five or a ten or what, whatever, take it from your wallet, okay? Right now, come on. Regional campuses as well from your purse. I want you to, to hang on to that piece of money because it's going to talk to you today. Put it up to your ear. Do you hear it yet? Okay, we're going to listen to it. Money talks. I want you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. Okay, James chapter 5. We, we're in the 10th week of a 12-part series, so we're almost done with the series that we've been calling Faith That Makes a Difference. Faith that makes a difference. And one of my goals in going verse by verse through James is I hope to whet your appetite to read the Bible on your own. I hope that through the week you'll consider picking up God's Word and reading verse after verse, chapter after chapter, book after book. A couple of tools that will help you do that. One tool is a Bible reading schedule that will tell you where to read each day. And, and the one that we're beating the drum for these days has been put out by an organization called Scripture Union. It prints a five-year, once through the Bible, every five-year reading schedule. You could get it at the Resource Center at any one of our four campuses, a hard copy, or you could go online, you know, go to biblesavvy.com. That's my website, two Vs and Savvy, biblesavvy.com. Go to the Resources tab. There's a link to Scripture Union's Bible reading schedule. You could get it sent to your home computer. You could get it sent to your phone, your smartphone. Summer's a good time to start a new habit like this. You got a little extra time on your hands, perhaps, to start reading God's Word. The other tool I'd recommend is that BibleSavvy.com website, because twice a week I blog on the passages that you're reading in Scripture Union's reading schedule. And I make comments trying to draw insights out of the passage to help you see things so that you can make your own applications. I want to coach you to becoming a better, more observant, uh, more Bible-applying reader. Okay, so those are a couple of tools. Now, today we're going to take a look at James chapter 5. James has got some difficult things to say to us. He's going to tell us that our money is talking. There are some stern words that are going to come from our money. Uh, some, some of you don't like to hear stern words of warning. In fact, people tell me from time to time the reason they come to churches is, is to get a lift to their spirits, and that's okay. But if that's all you want to get, just a, a lift, there are plenty of megachurch pastors and TV preachers and popular Christian authors that will give you that, that lift. But at Christ's Community Church, we try to teach everything God's Word says, which means sometimes it's going to be encouraging, sometimes it's going to be butt-kicking, okay? I, I, I hesitate to use a crude expression like that, but it's the only way I know to describe the fact that sometimes when you open the Bible and you read it or you hear it preached, God takes a two-by-four to the, the side of your head, right? says, come on, wake up. Here's, here's some sin in your life that I want to expose. You've got to deal with this. Uh, sometimes God's Word is not so politically correct, certainly doesn't go with the culture, is willing to push back. The culture says this is right, but God says, no, it's not. Get it out of your life. 
You know, sometimes God's word is just so challenging. It pushes us out of our comfort zone. And that's what we're going to see in James 5 today. James, as he talks about the subject of money, he sounds like a ranting Old Testament prophet. And in case you're tempted to think, well, you know, like, couldn't we hear Jesus talk about money instead of James then? You know, Jesus, the nice guy. Let me just remind you that James was the half-brother of Jesus, and in his New Testament epistle, he borrows a lot of material from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And if you, you want to hear some stern words of warning about money, read what Jesus had to say about money in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Okay, so, so money talks, it's going to say some difficult things to us, so put on your big boy pants, or ladies, your big girl Knickers, whatever. Let me read the opening several verses of James chapter 5 to you. Are are you ready for this? Okay. I warned you. Now listen, you rich people. Stop right there. I just want you to understand that in comparison to the people James was writing to, if you're tempted to to think, well, this isn't going to apply to me because I'm not a rich person, You're very rich compared to the people in his culture. Take my word for it. Listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify. See, your money's going to speak. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. A four stern warnings, things our money is going to say to us. Here's number one. So hold, hold that bill up to your ear. Listen. Come on, play along. Okay. Here's the first thing it says. You're going to be left with nothing. Okay, you're going to be left with nothing. Money talks and it warns us that much of what we spend it on is of no lasting value. That's what James is saying in the opening verses of chapter 5. Much of what we spend our money on is of no lasting value. One day we're going to stand before God in judgment. Every one of our lives is going to be evaluated. And on that day, James says, there's going to be a lot of weeping and wailing. You see that in verse 1? As we discover that we wasted so much of our money on things that didn't count for eternity. And suddenly all that stuff is gone. I mean, in, in, in a blink of an eye, it's gone. So if we're spending our money on temporal stuff, our money is warning us we're going to be left with nothing. Weep and wail. James chooses two verbs that pop up in the Old Testament prophets all the time, describing the emotional outburst of people who find themselves on judgment day before a holy God And they discover they've lost everything. There's nothing left. I, uh, last summer, got a phone call from Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse is a disaster relief organization, and we partner with them at Christ Community uh, oftentimes. In fact, just recently with the Oklahoma tornado, uh, you guys gave generously to the work of Samaritan's Purse. Last year, Samaritan's Purse told me this. Last year, we were the third biggest giver, Christ community, in the country to Samaritan's Purse, which is kind of of cool. So So I got a call last summer from Samaritan's Purse, Franklin Graham, 
who is the, the CEO of Samaritan's Purse, Billy Graham's son, uh, wanted me to come and join him at an event that they're doing up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. They were going to do a, a Christian rock and roll concert uh, right on the lake up there, and then uh, they would have all these exhibits for Samaritan's Purse, promoting Samaritan's Purse to the thousands of young people they expected to come to the concert. Well, it just so happened that Sue and I were studying and writing up in Door County at the time. So we said, oh, sure, we'll bop on over to... Uh, uh, to Green Bay, and we did, and we heard some cool bands play, and we went through the Samaritan Purse exhibits. And one of the exhibits that la- left a lasting impression on me was this tornado simulator. Okay, you, you walk into this great big room that they've set up, and the first room you step into is a simulated living room. So you're standing in the living room of a house, and they're describing to you the damage that tornadoes can do. And then as they're talking to you, the sound of an approaching tornado starts to be heard. And then the siren goes off, and they say, we got to get you into the basement. And they take you into another room that's a simulated basement. And while you're down there, the whole structure is shaking, and it sounds like a freight train is going over your head. And then you come out at the end of the tornado, and there's nothing left. Absolutely. You look at the devastation, there is nothing left. That's what James is talking about in these opening verses of chapter 5. God's judgment at the end of time is going to hit like a tornado. And and when it's over, nothing of temporal value in our lives is going to be left. Nothing. Not our motorcycle, not our golf clubs. Not the three-season sunroom we just added to our house. Not the timeshare condo in Florida. Not our favorite restaurant. Not our iPad or our closet full full of clothes. Not our big screen TV or the health club where we worked out. Not the sailboat, the cappuccino maker. Nothing. James points out, look at verses 2 and 3, that all the stuff we currently own is already, catch this, already showing signs of passing away. In other words, this passing away is not just something that's going to happen in the future at the final judgment. It's something that's happening right now. And James wants to wake us up to this reality. James wants us to stop spending every red cent on things that are slipping through our fingers. Look at verse 2. It begins, your wealth has rotted. Note, James does not say your wealth will rot, future tense. One day in the future, at the final judgment, your wealth will be gone. No, your wealth has rotted. It's already in the process of rotting. Now, for James and his agricultural society, wealth would have been represented by how big your crops were, how big your harvest was. How many of you know that a harvest, this year's harvest, doesn't last? In fact, it starts rotting the day you harvest it. James continues in verse 2. He says, moths have eaten your clothes. Once again, please note, he doesn't use a a future tense verb to describe something that's going to happen in the future. No, he says that moths have already started their dirty work. They're already chomping away. The clothes that he's referring to here, the word that he uses, uh, referred to garments in his day that would have been very ornately embroidered, family heirloom type stuff that got passed from generation to generation. But in his day where there was no air conditioning and the Middle East was stinking hot year-round and moths could continually breathe, uh, breathe, they were always working away at your designer clothes, eating them. 
Go down to verse 3. Your gold and your silver are corroded. Now, what's interesting about James' third example of stuff that's passing away here is that we all know that gold and silver don't corrode, right? You know, James, you got it wrong. I mean, there are some metals that corrode, but not silver and gold. James would say, I'm not talking literally. What I'm trying to get you to wake up and realize is that whatever you can purchase with your silver and gold doesn't last. It's all passing away. Isn't that true? I mean, you remember the first new car you bought and drove home from the dealer? And you washed and waxed that puppy every week for what? For the first year, two years maybe, because that car was going to last forever. I was, how many cars ago? <laughs> or you remember the money you laid out for the Caribbean cruise because you needed some R and R and you got on that ship and it was so laid back and you came home and you were relaxed. That, that feeling was going to last for weeks, for months, and it lasted as long as it took you to get to work on Monday morning. <laughs> then it was gone. And you started looking at travel brochures. Like, where are we going to go next time? Remember that high-tech phone you bought, the one that had caller ID? Whoa. Yeah, that was like, what, 17 phones ago? We change our phones more than we change our, our underwear, don't we? Re- remember the piano you bought that nobody plays? Re- remember the Cubs tickets for that game that they lost 10-3 to in the freezing rain? Remember the prom dress you wore once? Or that great deck you added onto the back of your house that now has to be scraped and repainted every second year? Remember the DV player that doesn't play your new Blu-ray discs? Remember the living room ensemble? It was, oh, perfect fit, all the colors matched, and you sold it on eBay last week. Remember the ballroom dance lessons that you've never put to use? Sue? <laughs> She's got us signed up for ballroom two this summer. I'm not kidding. Uh, James says, your money wants to tell you something. Okay, your money wants to tell you that if you keep spending all of it on things that don't last, one day you're going to be left with nothing. You'll experience hints of that in this life, so pay attention, but it's going to hit you like a tornado at the final judgment. Money talks. What's it saying? Number two, you're cheating others. Did you hear that? You're cheating others. Go to the next verse, verse 4. Let me read it to you. Look, James says, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Again, money's talking. It's crying out. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now, James is obviously talking to landowners, to business bosses in this verse, people who set the salaries, who pay the salaries of the employees who work for them. And James is honked off because in, in many cases, it's apparent that the employees are getting stiffed. They're not being paid or they're, they're being significantly underpaid. As I focused on that in the text this week, I got to thinking, you know, some things never change, do they? I, I went online because I wanted to compare the average worker's salary today with the average CEO's salary. So let let me share a few statistics from my research. In the last 25 years, the average worker's salary has gone up 5.7%. 
in that same amount of time, the average CEO's salary has gone up 726.7%. Wow. The average salary for a worker these days is $39,900. The average CEO pay today is $9.7 million. That's the average, by the way. I think the top CEO in the country got paid a little over $60 million last year. Now, if you do the math, which I did, I got out my little calculator, I discovered that the average CEO pay is 243 times the average worker pay, 243 times. I read something written by Peter Drucker, a famous business guru, wrote a lot of business books. His, his most famous was a book called The Effective Executive that many of you in leadership in business have read. Drucker says that if the ratio between a boss's salary and a worker's salary gets to be more than, more than 25 to 1, see if you're 25 to 1 or less than that, that's okay. There'll be a teamwork atmosphere at your company. But if it gets to be more than 25 to 1, Workers become disillusioned. How about 243 to 1? 243 to 1. Now, now I understand that highly gifted CEOs play a huge role in the success and the profitability of their companies. And I believe CEOs deserve to be richly rewarded. But not at the expense of underpaid employees. And so James wants to warn CEOs or people who set the salaries of those who work for them, don't you cheat the people who work for you. Now I got to thinking about this principle and I thought, you know, there's a broader application here, isn't there? You know, we, we could get wrapped around making money in other areas of our lives that tempt us to cheat people of the money they deserve. Let, let me give you some other examples, some that perhaps we're, we're all guilty of. Okay, how about stiffing your waitress or your, your, your waiter, not paying them a decent tip? Maybe no tip at all. So several years back, I was at a pastor's conference in downtown Chicago, and when it came time for lunch, they dismissed the hundreds of participants to go out to the local restaurants and grab a bite to eat. And so I was sitting at a table with some buds of mine at a restaurant, and uh, at a neighboring table, there was a group of pastors, obviously pastors, they had their Bibles out and whatever, and they got done eating, and they paid the bill but didn't leave a tip. They walked out, no tip. And boy, was their waitress irate. And she began to give everybody within earshot, you know, her version, what she thought of pastors and churches and religion. And so, and so I jumped up and I went over and I said, hey, what, what was their bill? And I paid 20% a tip. I said, here, I'm a pastor, okay? I didn't do it because I was generous. I did it because I didn't want pastors, of which I'd be one, to get a reputation as cheaters, are there other ways that we, we cheat people? We're, we're so interested in clinging to our money or making money for, for ourselves that we would cheat others. How about when we sell something of ours? Whether you're a salesperson as your line of work or whether you're just you know, selling a house or a car or something on, on eBay. Do you withhold information? Do you distort information? Do you, do you neglect to tell them that every time it rains, the basement floods? A few years back, my daughter and son-in-law were looking for a used car, and they spotted something online up in Wisconsin. So they drove up there, and I said, now give me a call before you buy the car, okay? So they called, and they said, Dad, it looks terrific. I mean, this is a great price. The dealer tells us it's never been in an accident. It's got low miles on it. And I said, well, we'll do this before you buy it. 
Just take it out for a test run and stop by any body shop, any car repair place, and ask them if they'll give you 60 seconds to look under the hood. So the next call I get from them is about an hour later, and they said, "Uh, we're heading home. We didn't buy the car. I said, why not? They said, well, we stopped at a body shop. He opened the hood. It took him like two seconds to say, this car's been in an accident. I mean, look, look at all the damage that's been repaired, and he pointed it out to us. So are we so interested in making money that, that we would cheat others? You ever buy something and wear it once or use it once and then take it back and say, oh, it didn't work out for me? When it did work out for you once, it's all you needed it for. You ever pirate movies or music? You ever sneak into a place where you should have paid an entrance fee? I stepped onto the train this week. I was taking the train into the city, and there's a big poster. I can't remember having seen it before, but with James going through my mind, I, you know, kind of stood out to me. It said, be fair, F-A-I-R, and pay the fare, F-A-R-E. In other words, there are some people who are getting on the train and riding it who are not paying. Do we cheat others because of our... uh, own money grubbiness. Let me give you one more example. I was talking to a good friend of mine not too long ago. He pastors a large church similar in size to Christ's community. He said, we just, we just had our treasure do a little study, and he discovered that about a third of the people who come to our church never put a dime in the offering bag. He said, about another third give less than $500 a year. And it got me to thinking, I wonder what the statistics are for Christ's community church. I can't tell you what they are, by the way. But, you know, it, it, it got me thinking, just a side note really quick, because I don't want you to go down the wrong trail on this. If you're a visitor with us, or even if you've been here for weeks or you've been here for months, and you're not yet surrendered to Christ, you're just still kicking the tires, we're not interested in your money. Yeah, we don't want you making a contribution yet. But if you're a Christ follower, if this is your church home, here's the question I have. Is it possible to enjoy everything that a church like Christ Community offers? You know, it's weekend services and the child care that's going on right now and the musicians on stage and a sermon from God's Word, all the ministries, the programs in the course of a week, all the things that cost money from the lights that get turned down to the air conditioning to the pavement of the parking lot. Is it possible to enjoy all that and never help pay for it? So is that another example of cheating? And I know some of you are, are tempted to respond at this point, oh, I could fix that, just won't go to the church, then I won't be cheating anybody. But that doesn't fix the real problem. See, the, the problem is in here. That's what James is addressing. He's saying if there's cheating going on in our lives, if we're keeping our money to ourselves from the people who deserve it, whether it's an employee or a waitress, or a church, or what it says something about our hearts. And that's what needs to be fixed. You get it? Good. Number three, what does your your money say to you? Well, hold it up one more time. Keep playing with me. Come on. You guys at regional campuses holding this up? Okay. Here we go. You're behaving selfishly. That's what it says sometimes. I told you, this money is saying some tough stuff today. Okay, look at the next verse, verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. 
luxury and self-indulgence. I wanted a really good illustration of excessive luxury and self-indulgence, you know, over-the-top luxury. And so I Googled this week, uh, most expensive celebrity parties. Hey, it just kind of popped into my head. You wouldn't believe what people spend Boku bucks on, you know, for, for party-wise. Now, most of the money for these really expensive gigs, most of it goes to paying the entertainment. Uh, like one guy, a Texas investor, spent $7 million dollars uh, just to get the Rolling Stones to perform at a 60th birthday party a year ago. Okay, but the biggest bash, listen to this, the biggest bash of last year was thrown by Naomi Campbell, the supermodel. She rented a 15th century landmark in India. And then she paid 13 chartered flights to bring her friends from all over the world. 13 chartered flights, and they all arrived, and they found tables that were laden with exotic Indian foods, and then they were invited to play polo on elephants. And then at the end of the two days, this was a two-day party. At the end of the two days, Diana Ross gave a private performance. Yeah, I'm reading this, I'm thinking, I love Indian curry and Motown music. Wish I could have been there. Yeah. I mean, can you say luxury? and self-indulgence. But before we shake our heads at the, the spending habits of the filthy rich, let's take a look at our own lives. Don't, don't we all tend to spend money on our personal versions of luxury and self-indulgence? How, Howard Schultz, who founded Starbucks Coffee, in his business autobiography, he says, this is one of the things that motivated me to start my company. I wanted to offer people affordable luxuries, affordable luxuries. He said, you know, the average person can't go out and buy themselves a new Mercedes or, or, or can't buy themselves uh, a week in a resort on St. Thomas. But they could step into a Starbucks any day of the week and they could plop down $4.75 and walk out with a caramel ribbon crunch frappuccino. I've never had one of those, but I wanted to say it because it sounds so cool. Caramel Ribbon Crunch Frappuccino. But if you add up the 475, if you bought one of those every day this week, do you know by the end of the week you would have spent as much money as it costs to support for a month an orphan food, clothing, education through an organization like Compassion International? See, those little luxuries, little self-indulgences, they, they, they add up. What if you added up everything you spent on golf this past year? You know, the greens fees, the places you traveled to play, the golf balls that you lost and had to replace. What if you added up everything that you spent on travel this past year? What if you added up everything you spent on shoes or prom or eating out? or kids' sports activities, or movies, or cosmetics? What if you added up everything you spent to cut and style your hair this week? This year, rather. Nothing. <laughs> but, but it adds up, doesn't it? Take another look at verse 5 in today's text. James says a couple of things here that ought to warn us away from too much luxury and self-indulgence. And by the way, somebody's bound to ask, well, how much is too much? Like, is it never okay to buy a nice car or eat out 
at a ritzy restaurant or take a vacation that costs a few bucks. And, and I, you know, I'm not going anywhere near that. I'm just saying, as you open James and you, you read it, you got to wrestle with this. Doesn't, doesn't mean that those things are okay. Doesn't, doesn't mean that every time you do it, it's, it's bad either. You've got to wrestle with what, what luxury and self-indulgence looks like in your life. Because James has got some, some warnings here. The first of the two warnings in verse 5 comes from the opening line of the verse. He says, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Underline the phrase on earth if you have your own Bible in front of you because by saying on earth, James is warning us as we learned in our first point today that at the final judgment, we could be left with nothing. We could discover that, that everything we, we, we have is just on earth. But it doesn't carry over in the world to come. You know, when you read about money in the Bible, there is this role reversal thing that pops up a lot. The, the role reversal theme is that, that someday the, the people who have been wealthy in this world, who have spent a lot of money on themselves, will discover that they have nothing in the world to come. And those who've had very little in this world, those who have given a lot of what they have away to meet the needs of others, will discover that they're rich for all eternity. And so James is saying here, so where, where do you want your money? Where do you want your wealth? Do you, do you want it here where it's going to last 50 years, 70 years, 90 years if you live that long? Or do you want it forever? Do you want it for forever? Okay, that's the first word of warning in the, in the verse. The second warning about luxury and, and self-indulgence in verse 5, it's a bit more ominous. Look at the second half of the verse. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. James says, you keep spending all, all this stuff on yourself. You're, you're like an animal that's being fed and continues to eat. It eats, 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 eats. Why? So that one day it can be butchered. Once again, he's alluding to the final judgment. He's saying people who spend all their money on the good life in this world are going to get no life in the world to come. No life. Dead. Spiritually, eternally dead. You say, oh, James, you're so harsh. Jesus would never say anything like that. Oh, no, Jesus put it this way, Luke 9, 25. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? You can get it all in this life. You could spend it all on yourself in this world and end up with nothing in the world to come. So we should be very concerned if our money is saying to us today, you're, you're behaving selfishly. I mean, this, this may be just a little problem that we got to tweak, we got to deal with, or it could be a big issue for us. Some of us may be headed to an eternity apart from God with no life because all we had was in this world. Number four, what's our money saying to us? One last thing here. Listen to it. You're withholding life from those in need. You're withholding life from those in need. Go back to the text one last time, verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. James talks about murder in this verse. Circle the word murdered. You know, is he really concerned that some of his readers are killing people over money? 
Well, let, let me point out that there's two ways you can kill people over money. You, you can kill uh, people actively. You could kill them passively. I mean, you could take their, their money from them by hitting them over the head with an axe or shooting them in the chest with a gun or poisoning their food to get their money. Or, or you could kill them passively by just withholding from them what they need to sustain life. By withholding from them what they need to put three meals on their table in the course of a day. Or what they need to heat their home in the dead of winter. Or what they need to buy medicine for their kids. Now, 20 years ago, a movie came out that made famous a World War II era German businessman by the name of Oscar Schindler. Called Schindler's List. At the beginning of the war... Uh, Mr. Schindler was just interested in making as much money as he possibly could. And so he converted all of his factories to making munitions and war materials for the Nazi war machine. And then he hired as much cheap labor as he could possibly hire. And much of this cheap labor came by way way of Jews who were trying to, to escape detection, trying to escape being sent to death camps. And so they came to work to hide out working for Oscar Schindler. But over time, his heart began to grow for these people. And so he hired more and more of them, not because he needed them anymore, but because he was trying to protect them from the Nazis, from the gas chamber. At the end of the war, if you saw this, uh, this movie, Liam Neeson plays the, the role of Oscar Schindler. I think it's the performance of his lifetime. It comes to the end of the war, over a thousand Jews have been spared the death camps because of Oscar Schindler, and they gather together to express their appreciation, their gratitude to him. But he's brokenhearted. And he keeps repeating, but I could have done more. I could have done more. He walks over to his expensive automobile and he puts his hand on it and he says, this car, I could have saved 10 people. He took the pen from his, the Titec from his suit and he said, this, this is gold. I could have saved two people. Money can be used in selfish ways that withhold life from people or in generous ways that give life to people. And when when I say money can be used in ways that give life, I'm not just talking about physically meeting their needs, doing some of the things that we did this week for Super Second Saturday. Now, that's wonderful, but I'm also talking about imparting spiritual life to people through supporting ministries that are getting the word out about Jesus, through churches like Christ's community, through partners around the world like we have in Brazil and Bangladesh and Nicaragua and so on. Life, giving people life in Christ by carrying the good news of Jesus to them. Is your money giving life to those in need? Money talks. So what is your money saying to you today? Is it warning you? You're going to be left with nothing at the final judgment because every penny is being spent on temporal stuff. Is it warning you? You're cheating others. You're not giving people what they deserve to be paid. Is it warning you? You're behaving selfishly, self-indulgently. Is it warning you? You're withholding life from those who need it. You can change today. And please understand, I'm I'm not just talking about putting more money in the offering bag, and I have to say that because we're about to collect our offering, 
And some of you are certain that's what this is all leading to. And if I thought that this would jack up the offering for one week and then go back to where it usually is, it's not worth anything. I'm talking about a change of heart. In fact, we're going to sing about that heart change in closing. I'm going to ask all the bands, the worship bands, to come out on the stages of our four campuses right now because as we close, as we, as we collect our offering, we're going to sing about the most generous person in the universe. We're going to sing about Jesus. We're going to sing about the one who laid aside the glory, the treasures of heaven to come and live a peasant's life among us and to die on a cross to bear the punishment for our sins so that we could be given life if we'll put our hope and our trust in him. Friend, today surrender your life to Christ. If you are a Christ follower, surrender your heart anew to King Jesus who will teach you how to be a generous person. If you're lacking in generosity, if your money has been speaking words of warning to you today, the way to change is is not to try to do some externals that force you to be more generous. It's to surrender your heart to the one who's got a generous heart. To say, Jesus, come live inside more fully. More fully. Help me to be generous like you're generous. You get it? Good.